Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. to uh, have you all here. Um, our subject for today is the Vimalakirti Sutra. And uh, really, I guess it is, I want to say, ethical relativism in Buddhism or living in a complicated world where things cannot always be black and white. Uh, I think many of us in uh, our lives are wishing that uh, things were always simple, that every choice we made was uh, clear and pure. But the fact is that uh, for our lives today in this complicated world, but also in Dogen's day, in the Buddha's day, things were not always so pristine. We'd like to think that the Buddha and the saints um, lived in a world where everything, even for them, was just clear, but I'm going to show you that even for them sometimes they had to make some difficult choices because the world is not so simple, and this is what we face. Now, this came up because the chapter um, that we're reading today in the Vermilakirti Sutra really first had me scratching my head, and I had to look at three different translations, uh, Dr. Thurman's translation from Tibet and... Um, also a, a follow um, named Luke, a Chinese speaker who did one in Burton Watson's translation. And uh, they don't get much better. They all kind of agree. I, I tried to look at the Chinese. My Chinese is so-so. And there's enough ambiguity in there that you could play with what, what, what was being said. And, and I think Dr. Thurman tried to soften it a little, which is the version we look at. Burton Watson gave the worst possible translation or interpretation. But basically, if you read it for the first time, it's saying something like, oh, it's okay, you act greedy on the surface, you can act, you know, give in to all the passions, go out and party, do whatever you want. It's okay, as long as inside, you're not really attached to all that. And I said, what? That doesn't seem like a a very good Buddhist message to me. So is that really what it could be saying? It, it sounds more like uh, either it's a recommendation for psychopathic behavior in which it's okay, just be cruel and mean and violent to other people. As long as you're inside, you're feeling peace, it's fine. I said, that can't be what it means. And uh, I'm pretty sure that's not what it means. I just want you to, when we read that, you're gonna see it could be interpreted that way. I think it's, um, there's a much more subtle message here. And the reason we have to remember this is, remember the Vilmelakirti Sutra was basically uh, written for lay people and was very popular with lay people. A lot of rich people, business people back in those days, landholders, merchants. And uh, I'm sure that uh, they were not saints. 
Vimilakirti, as you remember, the beginning of the story, he goes into the, the bars and the casinos, and somehow he's the hero of the story. We're supposed to believe that he's doing this, but he's pure. How can that be? How are these Buddhist business people, you know, who probably are, you know, I'm, I'm trying to assume that they're very nice people generally, but sometimes in their business, they may have certain gray areas. Is this an excuse for them to cheat and just to, you know, be uh, bad people? And the, the sutra is saying, it's okay, as long as inside you, you really don't mean it. I can't, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I think it is recognizing a world of some ambiguity that we all must live in even now. And this is what I'd like to emphasize uh, to you too, because I don't think any of us are, are free of it. Um, I was just talking about Washin, and a couple of things uh, came up. Um, one thing is, uh, before he became a priest, he was in the uh, merchant marine and the shipping industry in Ukraine for many years. And it just crossed my, my mind, when you're on a boat and he's a sailor, are you responsible to check every container on the ship to make sure it's all in harmony with Buddhism. If he, he, he's still, you know, a very good man, and he was then, I'm sure, but you can't be responsible all the time for everything that a business does that you're part of. Many of you may work for directly or indirectly uh, corporations where you have clients. You cannot always be responsible for what the business does. We would like to be. I had someone who was a kind of a receptionist at a corporation that did some things that were not very good for the environment, and she felt very responsible. So I said, well, you're just a receptionist. You're not the, on the board of directors. If you're on the board of directors, I might speak to you a little differently, but you're a receptionist. I said to her, still, as a receptionist, you can try to bring some kindness to the workplace and maybe turn slightly the boat in a better direction. And if it really, really bothers you, she needed the job to feed her kids. This was a time you can't just walk out and get another job. And I said, if you, if it really bothers you that much and you can find another job, something that's better, do it. So this is, uh, I think, uh, something I face many of us face. I'm going to talk about it a little more, but right now let's get into this language and you'll see what I mean. First off, I'm going to jump down and show you the worst case scenario. This was Burton Watson's translation. Manjusri uh, here is uh, asking Vil Melikirti, and Melikirti, he says in the fir first lines, you, even should you enact the five deadly sins, you feel no malice, violence, or hate. Even should you go into the hells you remain free of all taint of passions. Even should you go into the state of animals, you remain free of darkness and ignorance. Uh, this is Thurman who does this. You may follow the ways of desire, yet you stay free of attachment to the enjoyments of desire within inside. You may follow the ways of hatred. This is the one that really got me. You may follow the ways of hatred, yet you feel no anger to any living being. And, and Burton Watson did it this way. 
he shows greed and desire in his actions, yet is removed from the stains of attachment. He shows anger in his actions, yet has no anger or aversion toward living beings. Boy, that's really hard to interpret as a Buddhist. How do you show anger, yet within you have no anger? Well, a couple of things came to me. I, I'm the father of a teenager, and sometimes I, I can say that I raise the voice and wag the finger, but inside, okay, I'm going to confess. So sometimes I do get a little upset with some things my teenage son might have done. I'm not going to claim that uh, I'm always a saint, but many times I raise my voice and wag my finger, and inside I don't mean it at all. It's just filled with love, a little trying to scare him, you know, about... Uh, you know, don't uh, do not do some bad thing. Don't, you know, put your seatbelts in the car. Why are you by driving here? I turn around and you have no seatbelts on, like that. You know, raise my voice. It's more of concern than of anger. This is true. There may be times when a business person or uh, someone must raise their voice in righteous indignation, but inside they should be calm. I can see sometimes when someone would speak forcefully, but inside they should be calm. But I do not believe this means that it's okay, do hate, do violence, but just inside, as long as you don't really, are, you're not really attached to it, it's okay. That's psychopathic behavior. That is not what I think this is pointing to at all. This is dealing more with a world of complexity, which me, we must live in. Let me read a little more. You'll see some of this. This is the Thurman. Translation, he follows the ways of avarice. Avarice means greed. Yet he gives away all internal and external things without regard even for his own life. He may follow the ways of immorality, yet seeing the horror of even the slightest transgressions, he lives by the ascetic practices and austerities. He may follow the ways of wickedness and anger, Yet he remains utterly free of malice and lives by love. He may follow the ways of laziness. And it continues a little more like that. So I'm thinking this is not telling someone it's okay just to live, be wicked as long as you don't mean it. I think what this is saying is none of us, as much as we'd like, can live in a world in which we're not surrounded by all this stuff, this terrible stuff. We see examples of people in our life who become angry. We see examples of wickedness. We see temptations. And we have two choices. Really, well, we have a few choices. Number one, we can go into the mountains and live in a cave. Well, that'll solve the problem. As long as we just gather our nuts and berries and stay in our cave, and then the only wickedness we have to deal with, I suppose, is our own because we're, we're by ourselves. Number two is um, we can go into a monastery, lock the doors, but I'm going to show you in a second. That didn't solve the problem. That never solved the problem. Number three is we can do what we're doing, which is live in a world of complexity in which in our own families and the news, we see violence, we see wickedness, we see temptation. And as best we can, 
inside, it doesn't get us. And outside, we try as we can to turn it in good directions, knowing it can never be perfect. Got what I'm saying? Sorry, I cannot fix the world. That receptionist cannot fix the company she's working with. But in her little way, she can turn it maybe in a good direction. She doesn't have, she's not on the board of directors, but maybe she can just gently, gently do something. We cannot stop the violence in the news. I, there's a war I cannot stop. I cannot stop all the crime and injustice I see in the world. I, but I'm not going to a cave. I'm not going to the cave. I'm staying in this world like Vimalakirti. That's our Bodhisattva vow. So I think what this is saying is we stay here with our necks up to it in the muck. But as best we can, we try to make something beautiful grow from this. That's got to be the message. It's, it is a Buddhist text after all. Now, I got to say, you know, most of these Buddhist texts, boy, they are a mess. They could have used with an editor back then. They're inconsistent. It's like everybody threw something in and they were writing with kanji, so they didn't have a word processor. If you just threw something in, it stayed because otherwise you'd have to rewrite the whole thing. Then another guy threw something in. Boy, the Vimalakirti Sutra is not what we call easy reading. It jumps around one thing after another. And I can't be sure, but I'm almost positive this is the message here. Now, why did I say the monasteries did not escape and the Buddha did not escape? You'd like to think, oh, the monks, they took vows of nonviolence and charity and not being, uh, being celibate and not being uh, uh, attached to uh, many things. So you would think that uh, they were living in a world of purity. I'm here to tell you it was not true for a simple reason. The people who allowed the monetary monastery to exist were the kings and the soldiers and the warlords of ancient China and India and Japan. Master Dogen's Eheiji could not exist but for a samurai lord sponsor, the one-eyed samurai, Lord Hato, a powerful regional warlord who gave Dogen the land and the capital in order to establish a Heiji. He had a choice, either have no community, be true to maybe some inner sense of perfection, and we would not be here right now. Or he accepted this money. Where did the money come from? It came from serfs, maybe slaves. It came from uh, land. It came from battle. And he took this money and he made something beautiful with it. The Buddha did the same. The Buddha had to feed his monks. The Buddhist philosophy was we open a bowl, things are placed in the bowl. We do not ask many questions where this came from. I think we would call it, what, 
No ASCII, no TELI, something like that. Now, did that mean that uh, the Buddha and Dogen were complicit in establishing, you know, all this horrible conduct? I mean, maybe many of the people who donated to the Buddha, they were good people. Maybe the kings were trying to do their best, like Ashoka, very good. But even Ashoka, the great king, man, he's got a kind of checkered past there. What do you do? So the Buddha came up with a kind of good solution. He accepted lunch from just about anybody who offered it. Hey, guys got to eat. These were kings, these were courtesans and powerful merchants and who knows what they were involved in. Hopefully good things, but you can't look on like a washing ship. You can't look on every container on the ship and see what's in there. Was one guy manufacturing weapons and the other guy is just uh, selling flowers? Who knows? But he took the money. So what do you do? You take the money and you put it to good, to good causes. And as best you can, you leave them with a teaching to try to turn the world in a better direction. That's what the Buddha did. He took this money, wherever it came from, and he built something to bring peace and goodness into the world. He took lunch from almost every powerful person who offered it. Rarely did he take the lunch. He said, take lunch from the poor people, but the poor people couldn't get, afford to give much. So he usually took lunches from the people who could afford it. And he'd leave them with a message, usually not telling them. You cannot tell a king, a king, disband your armies, king, give up. He, the Buddha was practical, so was Dogen. He'd leave them with as good a message as was possible. There is no sutra where he ever told the king, disband all your armies and leave your country completely unprotected. There was no sutra where he ever told a rich man, even though it says Vamilakirti and uh, some of the others gave away the, all, the, all their wealth. They also kept wealth. He said, use it for good purposes. Be charitable. Feed your family. Take a quarter to feed your family. Treat your workers well. He even said, treat your slaves well. Slavery was not, in those days, it was just part of the social scene. I know now, oh, it's shocking. The Buddha, many Buddhists, great Buddhists had slaves. It's true. In China, in India, there was slavery. Sorry. He said, treat them well. That was what was acceptable. What can I tell you? 600 years ago. Then he said, use some of the money for yourself and use it for charity. This is what the Buddha's message. This was Dogen's message. Dogen had warriors come. He taught them. He was asked to teach the Shogun. We don't really have a historical record of what the Dogen said at the time. But there is a movie, which is almost as good as having a sutra. Huh? Right? There's a movie version where some screenwriter made it. You can see it. It's called Zen, The, the Life of Dogen. And he goes to see the Shogun. The Shogun is... Uh, it's a little uh, Yiddish expression, Mishugana, the Mishugana Shogun. He's a little crazy, the Shogun. He's being haunted by all the ghosts of all the people he's killed, you know? So the Shogun 
is calls Dogen and says, soothe my heart. I'm all upset. I had to kill all these people. Dogen doesn't say, well, disband your armies. And, you know, Dogen kind of leaves him with a message. Try to be more peaceful in the future. This is what we face. Right now, Washin, in my heart, uh, I was, uh, some charities came. I had a choice between a charity to buy arms for the Ukrainian army or to support the Ukraine, Ukrainian refugees. Of course, I chose the charity. I could not support the Ukrainian army myself, but I gave money to, to help refugees. Fine. But in my heart, do I hope the Ukrainians win? Am I going to lie to you? Of course, I hope the Ukrainians win. Do I think the Ukrainians are going to win by, you know, just gosh-showing to the Russians? No, I don't think so. Does that make me a warmonger? Because in my heart, I support the Ukrainian resistance. No, I don't think so. I wish there was no war. I believe in the Ukrainian people's right to defend themselves personally. The Dalai Lama was asked this question this week. What do you think about the Ukrainians defending themselves? The Dalai Lama copped out. He goes, war is bad. Yeah, we all agree on that Dalai Lama, but can the Ukrainian people, do you think that they have the right to defend themselves? Oh, war, war, I wish there were no wars. Okay, thank you, I do too. I wish there were no wars. I understand where the Dalai Lama is coming from. I do believe personally that the Ukrainian people tragically have a right to defend their homes. Does that make me a warmonger? I leave it to you. This is the kind of choice I have to face. I'm a translator of legal materials because I also translate Buddhist things, but Buddhist things don't feed my family. I have to translate legal documents sometimes. For the most part, I rarely am faced with any kind of ethical choice, but occasionally it comes. For example, a big Japanese company came to me to do something about their medical devices. Okay, that's good, right? They're making medical devices with technology. But I know the same company in another division is also doing weapons. Should I refuse to work for this company? I did not. Another situation though, a tobacco company came to me and said, will you translate these contracts? And I said, I'm sorry, I can't do this one. My father died of emphysema from cigarettes and I've known too many people, I think cigarettes kill, I cannot do this one. So I turned that one down. But I cannot look in every box of every client who comes to me. So I try to take the money I earn from that work and create tree leaf and do this. And when I can, I, I leave a good message. I'll give you one more example. I got a strange call about a year ago. Will you come teach meditation to our athletes? I sometimes done some small sports teams, give them a talk on Zazen. This one, however, was uh, for the motorcycle racing in Japan, which is like horse racing. It's a gambling. It's a 
nationally licensed gambling operation, like the horse racing. And they said, will you come and lecture our jockeys, the, the, the motorcycle riders? We are looking for a meditation teacher. If not you, it will be somebody else. Okay, boy, this really said, I'll get back to you. And it sent me for a couple of days really thinking about this. What do I do? Well, first off, they're looking for a meditation teacher. If it's not me, it's going to be somebody else. Okay, that's clear. Next, I looked at Vermilla Kurti. He went into the gambling casino. Is there some reason I can go in here and leave a little bit, turn the boat in a good direction? I looked at uh, homeless Koto Sawaki, who during World War II, he, this fellow Victoria wrote a book about Zen at war in which he had all the Buddhists who in any way said, did or he thought said something positive about war. He made them all into warmongers and it was not so clear. You had some Buddhists in the war who really were warmongers, nationalists, very few, but a few virulent nationalists okay but you didn't have that you had some other people who were patriotic like i'm sure washington and i feel toward ukraine right now or if my country were invaded or someone came here to japan i would feel a certain patriotism and support of the military you had a lot of buddhists like that and then you had buddhists who regretfully knew the horrors of war but thought that we got to do something. So for example, homeless Kodo, who got this bad reputation for being a warmonger was very much the opposite. He had seen, he had been drafted as a young man in the Russian Japanese war. So a real horror, he wrote that the horror disgusted him in the stomach. And Victoria ch changed that to, oh, we enjoyed, it filled us. He said, the, the heart, the killing filled us. And if you read the Japanese, it said, the killing disgusted our stomachs. Victoria did that a lot in that book. He would twist these statements. So homeless Koto was disgusted by the war. And yet it comes World War II and they say to him, you must uh, go and speak to the soldiers and you must write something in a magazine for the Buddha. The Soto Shu said, we're going to publish something. We need an essay from you. And he probably had a choice. Either I say no, or I go talk, or I write the essay. So he wrote the essay and he gave the talk. Here's the brilliant thing. He gives the talks and he threads that needle. He's telling the soldiers, look, I saw war. I, I can put up my articles on this later if you want to see. I saw war and you're going to have to kill people. Please be civilized about it. Um, treat the enemy as if your own family. I believe that's what he said, if I recall. Feel the weight of what you're doing. Okay, so he's a kind of practical realist. These soldiers are going, whether he likes it or not. So he gives a talk and says, not, abandon the army, run away. He didn't say it. He said, go, you're going to fight. In those days, by the way, I'm sorry we're getting way off course here, but in those days, by the way, you got to understand the Japanese did not know about what was going on overseas 
It's not like they got the newspaper and they knew, oh, I see what the Nazis are really doing and I really know what's going on with the, in Germany and I really know what's going on in China. To them, they were getting filtered news, even my own family at the time. They were being told what the government wanted to tell them. So he didn't know everything that was going on. He thought maybe this was a war that was defensive. So he told the soldiers, you need to go fight this war. Please do it in the best way possible. Okay. So I took the job with the bicycle folks and I go and I speak to them because what can I leave them? And I, I, and some of the coaches are sitting there and I try to say to them, be honorable in what you're doing. Oh, by the way, I also investigated, is this, this is a nationally licensed, like the horse racing. They post the numbers. If you have addictions, they actually have some programs. They're actually trying to make an effort to avoid people who are gambling with addictions. But I went and I, I gave a talk that basically said, be an athlete, be the best athlete you can be, and ethically don't get involved in anything dirty, don't cheat, and hopefully no one's getting hurt from this. I tried to get a message in there. And then at the end, I walk out of this and they hand me an envelope and they say, here's your money. I said, well, I, I don't want any money. And they said, well, the government, it's, it's a Japanese government program, you got to understand. They said, the government insists we have to pay you. You have to take this money. So I took the money and I immediately donated it to charity. I was thinking a charity against gambling, but I, I gave it to the a charity that helps poor people. This was the choice I made. Was it black and white? No. Could I have run to the cave? Maybe I could have done that. Someone else would teach him. But I went, I taught, tried to leave a good message, took the money and tried to let the money do 10 times better than anything, any damage I did by helping these people. That was the ethical choice I made. So this is what we face. Now let's get back into this material because I think that's what it's talking about. So he may follow the way of average, avarice, yet he gives away all the internal and external things without regard even to his own life. He may follow the ways of immorality, seeing the horrors of even the slightest transgressions, yet he lives by the ascetic practices and austerities. Okay. And then the alternative version by uh, Watson is the next one says, Interesting. If you're poor, don't be attached to your poverty. Feel rich inside. And if you're rich, because a lot of people reading this are rich, don't be attached to your riches. But he's not saying give your riches away. Use them for good things. You're all living pretty prosperous lives. I'm looking at all your houses here. You may not think, oh, I'm not rich. I'm just a lower middle class American. The fact or wherever you are in any country. And uh, Cyprus, you too. Mauritania, I'm including you. I'm looking at you. You're not all living terrible lives. You're relatively wealthy people. The message here is use it for good. Watton says, he seems to be among the poor and destitute, yet he has jeweled hands capable of bestowing inexhaustible benefits. The next one is a little slight to against uh, against uh, disabled people. Notice that it was in the old days. He seems to be crippled and deformed, yet possesses auspicious features. 
adorning himself wonderfully with them. Okay, let's take that to mean that it doesn't matter what you look like. It is who you are inside. He seems to be humble and lowly, yet he is born into the seed lineage of the Buddha. I'm going to skip down to the next paragraph. He may manifest to living beings the ways of the sick and the unhappy, yet he is entirely, entirely conquered and transcended the fear of death. He may follow the ways of the rich, yet he is without acquisitiveness and often reflects upon the notion of impermanence. The next one's interesting. <clears throat> he may show himself engaged in dancing with harem girls, or I don't know, seeing porno on the internet or whatever we do these days, that's the equivalent. Yet he cleaves to solitude, having crossed the swamp of desire. Okay, so this is it again. All I can tell you is either go to your cave or when you're cruising the internet and you see something uh, distasteful, try to not become a prisoner of that and to turn it in a good direction. If you have a chance for greed, if you have a chance for violence, if you have a chance for anger or you see it around you, don't you get pulled into it. I'm not saying you're going to be a saint. I'm not saying you can be a saint. I'm also a practical Buddhist, like homeless Koto Suwaki and the Buddha and Dogen. Well, maybe Dogen was more of an idealist than me because he had his monastery. You know, he could pretend he was in the mountains isolated most of the time. I can't. I'm here in the suburbs, baby. I got the internet. I know what's going on. So I'm not going to tell you, you are going to be saints. I'm telling you, be good people. Be someone on your deathbed who can sit there and go, okay, I give myself a B plus. I'm happy. Okay, get A minus even. Go ahead, try for it. But I don't need 4.0 students. I just told this to my son for his college, by the way, really in real life, because he's, he's got some grades that are doing pretty good. I said, I don't need a 4.0 student. Do your best. You're good people. Don't kill anybody, please. Don't rob any banks. Don't rape. Don't burn down someone's house. Don't you start any wars. If I had the chance right now to teach Zazen to Mr. Putin, you're damn right I'd go. I don't think he'd want me. I'd bow to him. He'd say, My, bring me some peace. I'd say, Mr. Putin, if you would like peace, be peaceful. I would go. I'm telling you to do the same. Now, let's see. Do we have time for the next? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave uh, chapter nine for next time because it's, it's also this other big uh, topic. But uh, basically, it's about emptiness again, the non-duality of the world. And what we do is, again, in that section, part of the way to bring peace to yourself is you see a world of war, killing and being killed, but somehow you know that there is something in our practice beyond killing, beyond killer and kill. You see 
anger, someone angry at somebody else, and we know something beyond someone to be angry and something to be angry about and someone who's on the receiving end. We see birth and death. We see something beyond all this. That's part of what we do, part of what we do. So you can be free. Some people think, oh, it's okay then to kill someone because in your heart, you're a Buddhist, you know, I'm not really, there's no one actually there. They're empty. I'm empty. There's killing is empty. So I can just shoot him. It's okay. That is not the message. It's true. That is true. We believe what I just said, as we'll see next time, but that's not the message. The message is if you're in a situation when there's killing going on, first off, you try not to kill. If you do need to kill in defense, try to avoid it as much as possible. I often say if there was somebody in my house standing over my daughter in the room and I don't know who this person is and what they're doing in my house, I may grab the baseball bat first. We don't have guns in the house here. This is Japan. And give them a little knock and then ask a question. I'm not sure what I would do. I'm not going to lie to you. But to the extent possible, I don't go into the grocery store and knock people around. I'm not a violent person. To the extent possible, when you're in terrible, difficult situations, try to turn them to good as best you can. And you don't become a prisoner of the greed and the anger and the jealousy. If you see jealousy all around you, if you feel it rising in your own heart, to the extent you can, let it go. To the extent you can in this complicated, complicated world, leave it better. I'm a practo Buddhist. What was it? Pragmatism? Isn't that the, I'm a pragma Buddhist. I'm a, we'd like to say a realist because I know we have hard choices to make sometimes. Okay. That's my talk, which I also give a B plus. Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.